Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today to discuss an Aspen position paper is Dr. David Evans, the first author of The Use of Visceral Proteins as Nutrition Markers, an Aspen position paper, submitted by the Aspen Malnutrition Committee for publication in the February 2021 issue of NCP. Dr. Evans is a trauma and acute care surgeon and the medical director of the System Nutrition Support Team at Ohio Health in Columbus, Ohio. So thank you, Dr. Evans, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we start our discussion, I need to ask you, Dr. Evans, if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share. Yeah, well, in nutrition, I've been a speaker and consultant for Abbott Nutrition, Alcresta, and Fresenius Cavi, and also a consultant for Quorum CVS um, Home Infusion. So thank you. So when I started my career over 35 years ago, I remember being taught to use serum albumin and other laboratory markers like total lymphocyte count, even pre-albumin to determine nutrition status. But that kind of changed for me in 1987 when the J.G. Boyendesky papers about subjective global assessment came out. And I think for most nutrition professionals, serum proteins haven't really been in our nutrition assessment toolbox for quite a long time. So how did it get to this point that we're still having this conversation? And then why did it take us so long to actually come up with a position paper on this topic? You know, I don't think that in my practice, a week goes by where I don't at least have a resident say, let's send some nutrition lab. And of course, they're talking about albumin and pre-albumin when they say that, uh, maybe, you know, transferrin or something like that. For whatever reason, it's just broadly out there in the healthcare community that we can check nutrition labs. And albumin and pre-albumin are relatively easy to order. Um, Their albumin in particular is actually included in a lot of the liver function testing panel. And it just intuitively makes so much sense that, you know, we would have some sort of biomarker. Why not? Why not check it? And so, uh, you know, this is something that's really just lingered with us, I think, for a long time. And it's to the point where we even see literature outside of the nutrition community where they define malnutrition strictly as one variable. They'll often define it as an albumin less than 3.0 or albumin less than 3.5. And you'll see entire papers saying things like the impact of malnutrition on you know XYZ outcomes, and it'll be all about albumin. So we really felt, you know, this is something we've been seeing for a long time, but we really felt that we needed to have a position on this. And the leadership of Aspen and uh, my great co-authors on the Malnutrition Committee really felt strongly that we needed to get a statement out there that really talked about, you know, what these are um, not supposed to be used for and what they would be useful for. But here we are, that we decided to uh, make this paper. And certainly it's gotten a fair amount of attention already. So can we just back up and, uh, Dr. Evans, could you kind of explain to the listeners why we don't consider serum proteins as valid nutrition assessment markers? Yeah, sure. For most of this, of course, we're talking about albumin and pre-albumin. And there are several reasons that they are not effective measures of nutritional status. One is is that at the heart of it, they don't directly correlate with body um, lean body mass or um, total protein in the body. You know, we wish they did, but they don't. What they really are is they are acute phase or negative acute phase reactant, basically inflammatory markers that when we have inflammation, they go down rapidly. 
And then as inflammation is resolving, they go back up. So we talk about um, acute phase reactants normally like CRP, where when there's inflammation, it goes up, the C-reactive protein. But in this case, they're negative or inverse acute phase reactants because they go down. And there are a variety of reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with the liver. And I think we're you know, still learning some of the details about how this works. But there's a process in the liver called hepatic reprioritization. So basically, the um, liver reprioritizes how it does protein synthesis in an inflamed state. And there's less albumin and less prealbumin made. Another reason is that as um, a patient becomes either inflamed or septic, the capillary permeability goes up. So basically the tight junctions, the gap junctions between the cells, between the endothelium start to break down. And we see fluids cross those broken down capillaries, but we also see larger molecules like albumin and prealbumin crossing as well. So they're going from the intravascular space to the interstitial space. Of course, that's how we see um, edema develop. And there's some physiologic and, and perhaps evolutionary advantages to that. Sometimes these, for, these function to bind either free radicals and serve an antioxidant function. They also um, can scavenge some uh, small molecules and, and some elemental metals even. Um, so there are a lot of reasons that this may happen. But all this is, is needless to say that basically within an inflamed, injured state, the serum levels go down while the total body protein, total body albumin and prealbumin isn't necessarily going down. And so that decrease in the bloodstream uh, doesn't really reflect nutrition. It reflects inflammation. Dr. Evans, is there any role for monitoring these visceral protein levels? And, and, and if so, what is that role? Well, I think it's a, a limited role. So there, there still are some times that it probably is appropriate to monitor those levels. Uh, first of all, you're going to be stuck with the fact that oftentimes these labs are going to be sent on patients and um, we're going to be stuck with them. So, so that's the first thing. I don't really see them going away. I mean, it, maybe someday we'll unbundle them from some of the uh, things like the liver function panel. When, when would I check them? So first of all, I do still like to use them preoperatively. But preoperatively, I think this is, it's a marker of risk. It's not necessarily a marker of nutritional status. It may even be a marker of nutritional risk. And that's an important point. And what do I mean by nutritional risk? Well, I mean that a patient with, in an inflammatory state with an elevated C-reactive protein and a diminished albumin or diminished prealbumin is you know, that's an, that's an ill person who needs good nutritional support. And so these are patients where if they don't receive adequate nutrition support, they're more likely to have a poor outcome. Um, certainly, if you have a, a low albumin or prealbumin before surgery, it's a warning sign that there's something wrong. It's probably not a warning sign that you're malnourished per se. It's not a warning sign that your uh, protein levels are too low. Uh, but it is a warning sign that there's inflammation present. And so we probably need to pause, let the inflammation resolve if we can. And that part of that treatment may even be addressing their nutritional status. You know, it may be treating infection, targeting other causes of that inflammation as well. But it's a, it's a marker of risk, not a marker of true malnutrition. The other time I think that there may still be a role is when we're monitoring nutritional support therapy post-illness or post-surgery. Some people may be surprised to hear me say that, 
But I think it, once again, is a marker of the resolution of inflammation. So as we're doing our nutrition support, as we're providing optimal enteral or perineural nutrition, if we see the albumin and the pre-albumin returning to a normal range, we can at least in that the inflammation is resolving, that that patient's nutrition risk is perhaps going down as that inflammation is resolving. They are transitioning from a catabolic back to an anabolic state and that their protein and calorie requirements may be returning to more of a normal level where they don't need that extra support. So I think there is still a role for monitoring them. It's just understanding that it's not a simple, you know, one single assessment of nutrition status. I think I'd also like to point out from my experience as well that I do work with people with liver disease and that is one of the, the places when you have someone with ascites where they're going to do paracentesis or diuresis and then replace them with albumin. That's another situation where, again, it's not necessarily there at high nutrition risk for sure, but monitoring their albumin levels not telling me whether they're better nourished or less well nourished. I think the other thing is all of us are used to, as you mentioned, being on rounds and you have an attending or maybe a resident asking questions, or maybe a resident will say, well, what are we going to watch if we can't watch albumin? So what, what would you tell someone? Um, first of all, can you kind of differentiate the difference between nutrition screening and nutrition assessment? What should we be using for those markers of screening and assessment uh, if we're not going to be using visceral protein levels? Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, first of all, I think that visceral protein levels particularly preoperatively may play a role in nutrition screening. And in fact, um, one of the tools that we refer to in the paper is the PONS tool, P-O-N-S, preoperative nutrition screening tool. And basically it's kind of a an MST or MUST, but we've added albumin into it. And it's because of low albumin, less than 3.0, is like I mentioned, a marker of risk and even, even perhaps nutrition risk. And so I think that those patients who screen positive then do need to go on to have an assessment. So, I mean, for me, a screening tool is something that should be built into the evaluation really of every patient. It probably should be something that's done um, not so much by dietitians and, and nutrition professionals, but more by, you know, frontline health providers, whether it's nursing or, or physicians. Uh, you know, in my case, it may be when we're doing preoperative evaluation. And, and so if a screen is positive, and of course that's going to be something that may have some false positives at times, then we're going to move on to an assessment. And so I, I've always been a big fan of the SGA or the patient-generated SGA, the PGSGA. And of course, that's a more comprehensive tool. And I think that having those patients seen and evaluated by a dietitian is, is really crucial when, um, when that's available to us. So I think that's that's part one is there are these validated tools. Many of them have been around for quite a long time, and, and those should be followed. I think that in the um, acutely hospitalized patient, you know, I, I really do wish we had more um, biomarkers. And I think that there are some emerging things that we're learning more about. We're uh, learning about the role of imaging, and that may depend on what patient population you're working with. Uh, we've been very interested in the last few years in uh, looking at the use of CT to look at either muscle density or muscle mass on CT scan when patients have had CTs. I think that functional status is crucial. Uh, there was a paper published last year 
that looked at three different measures of risk before surgery, for example. It looked at the NISQIP risk calculator, which is a tool that those working in the surgery community are aware of, where uh, you enter a bunch of patient data into the computer and it spits out a risk of complications or even a risk of death from surgery. It also looked at psoas muscle density, and then it looked at a functional assessment, basically a timed stair climb. This is a test where basically you take the patient to a stairway and you have them go down a flight of stairs and you go up a flight of stairs. And I don't remember the specifics of how they did it, but they timed how fast they could go up and down a flight of stairs and they had a threshold for that. And believe it or not, that timed stair climb actually outperformed our fancier techniques in terms of assessing the patient's risk of both complications and mortality with surgery. You know, in the ICU, maybe this is hand grip strength. You know, I think you know, timed walks or timed stair climbs, that may be a little much in the hospital. But anyway, needless to say, I think that functional status is a huge part of this. And I think that we need to continue to combine exercise with nutritional therapy in general. I can't agree more. And that whole idea of prehab and post-rehab and our patients just to improve their care. Certainly, we can't always predict when people are going to need ICU cares. But a lot of time, we can help in our patients who are coming in for surgery, and we have we know when that's going to happen. So I think kind of in wrapping up today, Dr. Evans, is there anything else that you'd like to comment upon or share with our, our listeners today? Well, I think that as we're trying to disseminate this idea, we all just need to keep up the fight. You know, I am so often on rounds, like I mentioned, you know, somebody will say, oh, let's check nutrition labs. And I'm guilty of it. But sometimes I just say, okay. <laughs> and um, but really, you know, we need to find these as teachable moments, you know, pause and explain, well, well what do we mean by that? And what, what else could we be doing? And, you know, should we be using some of these tools? Um, you know, I, I mentioned MST, the PONS tool, uh, the PGSGA, you know, are there ways that we can incorporate these into, you know, whether it's our clinic intake or our nursing admission assessment, you know, things like that, that we can build in alternate tools so that we don't feel like we really don't have any other data for patients other than their albumin and pre-albumin. And then also continuing to recognize the value and importance of the dietitian because, um, you know, unfortunately on the care team, you know, we're often not adequately resourced. We may not have enough funding for as many dietitians as we ideally would have. And I think if we're going to take it to the next level, you know, we can't really rely on things like JCO mandates that patients who've been NPO for, you know, 48, 72 hours, that that's where the dietitian starts. We need to bring them into that very initial evaluation and discussion of the patient, uh, whether that's pre-hospitalization or immediately at the time of hospitalization, if it was an unplanned hospitalization. And um, I think that unfortunately, sometimes the albumin and pre-albumin have been our stand-in because we haven't been able to do that. And so I really do want to recognize the very important role of the dietitian. And I think if we could continue to work with Aspen and other organizations to try to make nutrition and nutrition care a quality metric, uh, that's an important national goal. Uh, something that's recognized by JCO and the National Quality Forum. I think all of that is crucially important because right now these, what I would consider kind of best practice programs, really are very you know site specific and there are very few standards around when to implement those. So uh, that was a lot to that answer, but I do think that the albumin and pre-albumin lab 
it's and the 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 amount to which we use it as a crutch is really reflective of some bigger problems in our healthcare system and the fact that we aren't always able to get that prompt um, nutrition assessment and nutrition care to our patients. Well, I really want to thank you today, Dr. Evans, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I really appreciate the work that the Ask Malnutrition Committee has put into this document and, and other projects that I'm sure we're looking forward to seeing in the future. Thank you. And yeah, I do really want to uh, emphasize the great work that the Aspen Malnutrition Committee is doing and how much uh, time and effort all my co-authors and the Aspen staff uh, really put in this. There are many people who are very passionate about this topic. It really was a pleasure working with them on this paper and this project. And you will be able to see that list of authors in the Malnutrition Committee group. Uh, in the paper, it's going to be published in the February 2021 issue. I also want to point out that in 2021, we are celebrating NCP's 35th anniversary. So please stay tuned to all of our 2021 issues and learn more about nutrition support challenges as we go forward in the next 35 years. Thank you for joining us today.